I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix series, Queer Eye. We actually have a really special treat this week, guys. We're doing a lady. Yeah! yeah lady. I haven't done a lady in years. I know. Um, We've never done a lady. <laughs> I personally, I've never done a lady. Oh, I just got the joke. <laughs> You're homos. Today, we're talking to executive producer and showrunner, Jennifer Lane. From Ben Yeh's to Ben Yeh's, the Emmy award-winning Queer Eye is back for a seventh season. Grab your beads and let the good times roll as Bobby, Karamo, Anthony, Tan, and Jonathan bring some sparkle and sass to New Orleans and transform the lives of residents who are in need of a fresh start. You're a stinky boy. And what do we do with stinky boys? Tan and Anthony are going to wash your hair. Now. Okay. Now. So you're gonna do a wet t-shirt contest, take so, your top off. No, no, don't take your top off. Oh, so. wet. <laughs> And I'm joined now by executive producer Jennifer Lane. Jen, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you for having me. So, Jen, I am a huge Queer Eye fan. I can prove it. I have the Lego set, including, I just brought it down to the studio, my Jonathan Van Ness minifig, which I keep down here for good luck. Yeah, they're fun. Do you, in fact, own the Lego set, the Queer Eye Lego set? I admit, I do. It was gifted to me that that year for Christmas, and I put it together, and it was uh, it's fun. <laughs> it is fun. It's I sort love- of fun to realize, wow, that's legacy, right? It is. You know, it was, I think at the time it was like the Friends Central Perk and then Queer Eye's Loft. So, yes. hey, that's good company. Listeners out there who haven't seen it, there's even like a makeover chair that spins around. It's very exciting, Lego said. So right. I hear that you were the showrunner on the first season of Queer Eye in 2018. Um, this means you were in the field doing all that you do long before anyone knew the cast or the show. I imagine now that you guys all get more attention when you're out on the street, right? Yeah, I remember when we were going to shoot the we found this rainbow colored crosswalk in Atlanta. We really wanted to shoot the show open there, but we were petrified because, you know, revealing who the new Fab Five is was going to be like a spoiler. And then we went out and shot it and we had hired a bunch of help to try to keep the crowds away and no one cared. So if that helps answer your question, we weren't, it wasn't too hard to keep ourselves under wraps until the show premiered because it was actually the summer of 2017 we were shooting. So everyone loved the original Queer Eye for the Straight Guy. I mean, at least I did. I mean, I want to say everyone did. In my head, everyone did. Both shows were created by your EP, David Collins. Is that right? Yes, indeed. So for the first new series season, how closely did you want to track with the original show? Well, I think for sure. One of the things that kept needling me was that we needed to pay homage to the original series. So in other words, what we needed to hopefully accomplished by coming back was to gather all of the fans that were there for the straight guy, queer eye for the straight guy, and then add more, right? You don't want to alienate the people that made you famous in the first place. And so I think that's when it became the idea of using their first interview bites and having them sit down and really acknowledge that they were in a place of honor 
to be taking someone else's shoes who was successful before you is is daunting. Being a part of the Fab Five, what was the question again? Is <laughs> just bizarre. It's a dream. I really hope I don't let you down. This is amazing. I'm a little nervous because I don't know what to expect. I'm so honored to be here right now. Being part of this makes me so happy. Mm. And so we wanted to start with that humility. And I think, you know, let everybody know who was a fan of the show that we cared about that. Hmm. I'm curious what reaction you got uh, from viewers and, and people that you know who thought they were going to be watching like a fun makeover show and then ended up bawling their damn eyes out after every <laughs> episode of the show. <laughs> it's funny. I think if you're a producer and you really try to connive emotions, you're screwed. Yeah. So, you know, we weren't in there going like, let's make people cry. But when you're creating nonfiction television and you really have the respect for the genre and you back off and you let the talent do their jobs in this case our hosts our fabulous fab five you know it's a delicacy of producing but not overproducing and um that was really important as we set it out i can't help but think of the very first episode it was called you can't fix ugly with tom jackson he passed away recently Gosh, right yeah. Yeah. um and he was the one who made margaritas out of mountain dew uh he still had feelings for his ex-wife he had that yeah. huge beard which they turned into a beautiful ulysses s grant beard at the end yeah. looking back i mean that episode is so memorable how important was it to absolutely nail that first episode and and decide like which one was going to be the first episode of the show. Oh my gosh, that is always an intense exercise. And especially, you know, coming back and wanting to show the audience that it was going to be every bit as good as the first season. This is so randomly strange, but Tom Jackson was the first episode we ever did. Really? Yes. And that never happens. You know, you, you find you did an episode, like I always thought that like, Tammy Hicks was going to be our season finale and it got switched into being the season opener of season two. So it's funny how things really shift. But in this case, I think there was such a raw energy to the Fab Five. And I still love to this day the cute giggles as they run up the sidewalk waving goodbye to Tom. Bye, Tom. Bye, Tom. Bye, Tom. Bye, Tom. Love you. Y'all be careful. Good job, guys. Good job. Bye. I know that sounds so inside baseball, but. There was such a delightful innocence and joy to what they were doing. We were discovering the show that first week. And of course, all of the executives were in town to supervise the first episode's filming. And so, yeah, it was heavy, but fun in trying to figure out where do you go loud and crazy and gay? And where do we where do we get to do that stuff? And and where do we get to be thoughtful storytellers and just quiet down? Well, that's what I'm wondering, too. I want to ask about the casting process because you have to find people who can do it all. I mean, you have to have a certain set of skills in addition to being telegenic and in addition to being sensitive and being able to be flexible in all these situations. So what was that casting process like? You know, at first we weren't sure if we should try to cast people who were resistant the way that they were in the first iteration of the series. I saw episodes where Carson uh, Cressley just put his hands down someone's pants, you know, and I was like, what? Our culture has changed since then. And it's kind of not considered even funny. Yeah. And so I think culturally we were, you know, when you ask about like, how do we go into developing this, this show and, and, and in which ways do we want to be the same? In which ways do we want to be different? The original show was funny. It was a joke every two seconds, almost like sitcom tempo. And so that was the first thing was that we were we knew we were going to make this for today's audiences. I mean, you you do have 
absolutely superior casting here. But it doesn't mean that if you find the right five people that they're going to have chemistry with each other. So when did you first know that they had that? Because they do. To a person. You can put any two of them together, any three of them together, and they all have it. I mean, did you know that you had that right away? Oh, yes. Everybody knew it. They were on the board uh, by noon of our casting session. And that was February of 2017. You know, ITV's casting department had just sort of scoured the globe for people that were at the top of their verticals, as we call them. They ended up inviting about 40 people to a hotel in Glendale for like a weekend of intensive casting sessions. But that's what I meant to say. By noon, everybody had the five on the board. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And even they have told me that by that night, they had they had a group text of the five of them called the Fab Five. Mm. So they were really trying to put it out there. OK, so I'm going to give you a quick quiz um, if challenge you. If you can just like do a word association, one word for each of your hosts. Karamo, go. <laughs> Sensitive. Uh, Bobby. Uh, persnickety. Tan. I almost said funny, but I really think that's Jonathan now, but he's so funny. Uh, yeah, a tan. Um, charming. Jonathan. Funny. Anthony. Sweet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we we always think you can't think about Anthony without talking about his father, right? His father is such a presence. <laughs> Almost every scene we always say, like, uh, uh, Anthony's father is going to make an appearance in the show at some point. Like his connection to his dad. He always talks about his dad. I have cried. So I have cried more in Anthony's scenes on the show, I think, than I have probably cried in any other uh, scenes. I met show. Anthony's dad this summer in New Orleans. Really? That was nice. Yeah, he came for a visit. So... This season, the show takes place in New Orleans, and it seems like the location is like a character every season in the show. So what made New Orleans such a desirable place to film? Thank you for noticing. I kind of always say, like, we like to celebrate our culture as hard as it's been in these last few years with all the battling politically. The fact is, we always come from a place of like a great American city. I want people to love America when they watch the show. I want that to be a given. So, yeah, you know, it started with wanting to take Queer Eye out out of New York for the new for the new series. So right away, you know, in terms of developing a new a new idea for a series, you kind of want to say, well, what can we do differently? Well, we can change the location. Let's get let's get the gay guys into the south and see what happens. Let's get let's get them fish out of water and see what happens. You know, the first series was all in New York. And so that was um, one way we could really stand out as different. And so it started that way where we knew we were going to the South. And initially we even thought we might travel to different cities, but of course that's too expensive, too crazy for production. And so we settled on Atlanta for all the good reasons. You know, we always try to find a city that has a great metropolis, but also has great rural surroundings because that way you can find all kinds of people from all walks of life. You can find, you know, working class people, you can find people on the Hill. Um, So that's one thing we are always looking for, a way that we can drive within 60 minutes and be in the most rural area of the state of, of the state as well. Hmm. So as we're heading into the new season, can you give us a tease about what we're going to see? Well, one of the things is, you know, we wanted to make sure we came back from COVID and just shook off. So we start with a kind of a big dance number down Bourbon Street. That was kind of crazy. But like what to expect is just pure life joy. And I I I always do like a style guide to start a season. And this season was feed your soul. 
It is Louisiana state motto. And we just were like, yes, feed your soul. So this is going to be something we're going to do in every vertical is um, enjoy people and, and, and have fun. And dancing, of course, is always part of our pocket fun. One thing I really love about the new show, I will say, is that it definitely lacks. And I don't really want to I don't want to knock the first series because I loved it. But the new show definitely lacks a sort of like coastal snobbery that I think we're used to in sort of makeover shows and media where people are sort of being like, you know, like uh, this is, you know, aspirational. You know what I mean? There is like definitely a feel that like we don't want to make you who we think you should be. Oh, we yes. want to make you who you should be here in this life that you're living here and that feels incredibly fresh. And I think that, you know, the show really is honoring the people where they are, where they live. I'll give you an example. There was an episode, for instance, where they took uh, their hero shopping at Target because that is literally where their hero could buy oh. clothes, where they lived, right. right? So there's just sort of sense like we want you to be able to be the best version of who you are, where you live and how you're comfortable being, not who we think you should be, like the New York version of you or the L.A. version yes. of you. I love that right. about the show. It is one of our credos. And David Collins, the creator, always said this isn't a makeover show. It's a make better show. That's oh. all it is. And I used to say too, like, you know, when you start sweating and you want to do a good job. And I always say to the Fab Five, you do not have to change this person. You only need to turn their shoulders in a new direction and let them do the walking. And so I, this is also kind of interesting, but I just was reading that Carl Yoon used to say that you could never, your client will never trust you fully unless you accept the bad parts of themselves as well mm. as the good. Yeah. And I think we always try to come into people's lives and letting them know that we'll meet you where you are. Hmm. You know, we all have ugly parts to our personalities and it's usually from where we were raised. Anyway, so I just love that in our show, we like to meet people where they are and accept them for who they are and help them to be a better version of themselves. Yeah. And you have done seasons too, I think, in locations that aren't like, I think, a place that I would think of as being like very queer friendly or as queer friendly. You know, how does that cut, though, when you're going to a location that, you know, may not be as progressive, you know, as another as a different location? Has that has that factored into your selection process? The fact is any sort of major city in a state's the blueberry and the tomato soup, you know, so <laughs> Austin, you know, Kansas City. Are yep. you kidding me? Interior Missouri is probably doesn't look anything like Kansas City. Hmm. It's like Austin is to, you know, Midland, Odessa. In other words, we find ourselves even in Philadelphia was probably our hardest city in terms of just like personality. But it's still they could care less if we were queer in Philadelphia. They have bigger fish to fry. You know, port cities, they know what queer is. They don't care. I'd say our biggest contrast would be Atlanta. Hmm. Because we were worried, you know, you don't want to go preach to the converted and go to Austin, Texas. But the fact is, 60 miles outside of Austin, Texas, and you've got rural horse ranching communities, whereas 60 miles outside of Dallas, and you're still driving on the Metroplex. Yeah, yeah. So we chose Austin not because it was liberal by any means, but because it was it had great proximity to Texas as a whole. Hmm. So let's talk about the heroes, because that is what your uh, mm. uh, people on the show are called yes. that get that get made over or that get their lives um, made better, I guess is the phrase. I love yeah, that. Right, right. Walk us through the process of casting for the heroes. Um, do you make a stack of applications? Um, how, how does that work? Do people need to be able to improve in like five different areas of their lives? Oh. <laughs> you, you know, usually they're quite needy, but, you know. 
it's funny. The first season, it was much more difficult, obviously, to cast. But then again, I think, you know, as we get more legs, the fact is, I'll, so let's say casting department will put out a flyer and then they're going to get a thousand applications a night. Mm. So now there's just more to go through. And there's always a combination between people soliciting your attention towards someone they want to nominate and actually having casting the casting team go out, boots on the ground, and find engaging, interesting people. Tammy's son, Miles, he's 22 years old, and he just moved back home from Atlanta. Okay. He does not feel comfortable going back to their church because he doesn't feel welcome anymore after coming out as gay. Can't tell you how many people from Tammy Hicks to Marcos the Fishmonger. There's just so many people that are actually just people we found in the street. And then during the course of the show, they ended up becoming one of our heroes. Really? Yeah, even the, there was a college student in Atlanta and that was, we, we were like, you all, anybody on the crew know anybody? And this is, maybe this is inside baseball too, but. Oh um, no, I love it. <laughs> Tell me everything. production coordinator, it was his college roommate. Wow. He said, I really think you should help my college roommate. He's, you know, and that was the, I didn't graduate from college story. Yep. Wow. Yes. So casting has run the, has run the gamut, but now it's very streamlined, obviously. ITV's casting team is just the best of the best. And we really, we start by trying to tell stories that aren't often told, you know, these shows, they've been around since the beginning of television, you know, give the woman a new washing machine and a hairdo. It has been one of our oldest genres since television began. I agree with you. They are stories that haven't been told every single episode. It's a new angle. It's sort of somebody that's in a different place in their life. It's um, very often it's a new story for one of the Fab Five, like a situation that they've never been in before or like they seem to learn. At least one or two of them seems to learn something brand new each and every time. It's just such an interesting mix of people. Absolutely. And any show that cares about, you know, people and of course we're one of them you're going to want to find out how each of the Fab Five relate to the hero and in what ways, right. because that draws them closer, for sure. It sort of proves my point that if you talk to anybody for more than five minutes, everybody is interesting. It really it yeah. really does. That's good. So every episode begins with the Fab Five blitzing through the hero's home. Um, they kind of get laughs as they pull everything apart. Look how disgusting the bathtub it's is. It's so nasty. Neil's bathroom reminds me a lot of a skin tag. We gotta start just cleaning this. Like, it's not hurting anything, but it doesn't look great. It's so gross in here. It's like that green emoji with the, like, face. I don't want to spoil the upcoming season too much, but there's one very memorable scene of them doing that. Are there times where the Fab Five huddles up later and goes, wow, that was so much worse than I thought it was going to be? Yes. Usually, you know, whenever we break, it was it's just like, can we go wash ourselves? You know, and you know, for one, like Karamo doesn't like dirty, gross stuff. Yeah. Just doesn't like it. Doesn't like it. So there's always lots of good humor with that. Yeah. You know, but there's a limit. Yeah. <laughs> so more behind the scenes stuff that I'm very curious about. I always wonder about how things work. But Bobby somehow manages to like make over a whole house in like four days. <laughs> so no. I'm wondering, is it like a giant crew that's just like yes. banging through that yes. thing? Is it really four days? What is going on? It's not a giant crew. It's a tiny crew of like four people. Yeah. And then in here, do you notice anything different in your kitchen? 
Yeah, the what? backsplash. Thank you. Andrea has been wanting a backsplash. It looks like a brand new home. Yeah. It really does. But they are a, a Bobby's design team. And basically, usually about three weeks before, maybe two weeks, I kind of like to say it's like, who's on deck? What's on third? I don't know his own, whatever that was. But like, I don't want to clog the Fab Five's head too far in advance, but they really do produce with us. They yeah. really do sit down and develop the ideas for their field trips, why they want to help someone, and they get really into that process. But it's usually about two weeks out for the Fab Five when they're starting to focus their attention on, on the hero's stories. And then the design team meets with Bobby. They create like a lookbook, just like you would if you were a design team. And they sit and meet with Bobby. They'll go location scouting to see the hero's home. Bobby's the only one that's allowed to see the hero's home before mm. we go in there. Oh, so it's really a surprise for everyone else. So Bobby's team has this like exclusivity because we have to order all the furniture. Yeah, they have things. to measure. There's been some right? scary late nights. <laughs> I mean, where the truck from Pottery Barn has not gotten there yet. Yeah. But we make it through. <laughs> So Anthony, he's on Food and Wine Patrol, but he's also drifting into the more intimate, like food is for the soul. Like here's what food means. Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think is more memorable about Anthony, his meals or his like soulful interventions? You know, he never makes a big deal of his chefery because he's not a chef. He's a cook. So I think he emphasizes that part of himself. But boy, do I still make a ton of his recipes. Yeah. We just made those tarts from New Orleans this this week. <laughs> I love like I learned how to make pork medallion. He's a terrific and wonderful cook. Mm. And oh, and he he comes around with these platters and makes us all taste things constantly. So then you take this base right over here. Okay. It looks so cool. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you can take that spoon and just even it out nicely. You got it. And the rest of the rice goes on top here. Oh. Now, there's going to be a lot of moisture at the base, and we want some of the steam to be able to come up. So using a spoon or a knife, we can just sort of create oh, a couple of holes why. here. I get it. Are his scenes more memorable because of the food? Probably not. It's his sensitive nature, but he's terrific in the kitchen, I'll just say. The thing I love about Tan uh, is that, you know, I love shopping for clothes. Who doesn't? Who doesn't love like a makeover, like in-store, like segment that looks like a montage? I mean, it's very classic makeover TV. But the thing yeah. is, it seems to me the thing that's different about him is a huge part of it isn't trying to make people look good. It's making them feel good. So very often they'll come out of the dressing room in something that's like objectively amazing, but they're not comfortable. So he's like, that's not going to work. The fact that it just about closes, I want that. If it's too roomy, it's not the right size. Okay. It's just going to look like you're drowning. No, you're going to look like you're drowning in the suit. Uh -huh. So I want you to keep it open because it gives you a nice line. That seems like a singular makeover technique. Um, and I love that about him. I mean, that's that's very intentional, right? Oh, Tan is top-notch, wonderful, and gets into these, you know, the hero's character just as, just like we all do, you know, really is interested to know, how can I help this person, you know, learn more about how clothes can make them feel better, and takes that very seriously and wants to have the deep chats. Tan is the provocative one, honestly. Tan will be the one that wants to talk about homophobia with the rancher. Yep. And a lot of some of that more provocative chat doesn't get in the cut, but Tan's always right there. And and honestly, even in our New Orleans seasons, to address the idea of homophobia, which is a touchy subject. Yeah, yeah. Tan, it feels like Tan has um, a lot of experience, the code switching. 
He's, you know, moved from one country to another. I mean, he is to me like an incredibly interesting figure in many, many ways. And I completely agree with you. It's like therapy in the dressing room with Dan in many ways. I have to ask about Karamo's role because to me, it's like the most complicated one. He has to do so many different kinds of things under the vein of like the veil of like culture. Um, There's like, it could be anything. It could be a straight up Mm -hmm. therapy session. It could be taking them to teach them how to make friends, (laughs) learn a skill. It isn't obvious what kind of lesson or help someone needs. And I'm curious to know, how does he come or does the crew come to a decision on what it is Karamo is going to do with your hero? Oh, Karamo is famous for changing his ideas the night before. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Ralph, this is Ari. Nice, nice to, to meet you. Sir. Ralph is actually a polygraph examiner. Oh, my God. Okay. <laughs> You're going to sit down here. Okay. I love the awkward laugh. You're a little nervous. You're scared. Yeah, just a little bit. I remember one poor Fourth of July in Philadelphia and nobody got to hang out because we were all running around. But it's just, we usually try to, you know, we sit in meetings with them every week, the producing team. So that's when I'm talking about who, who's on first, what's on deck, because the producing team that's that week will come in and we'll have a very robust meeting with the Fab Five individually. And then uh, the next team will come in to sort of soft pitch the next season. I mean, the next episode. And that way our Fab Five can start to offer ideas. Producers will come with ideas for field trips. We'll talk about locations, interior, exterior, all of those things and and sort of what that person might need or what might help that person feel good. And yeah, Karamo and all of the Fab Five are just right lock and step with us on designing their field trips. That's incredible. So of all the Fab Five, it seems to me that uh, JVN, Jonathan Van Ness has had Really, at least we're looking from the outside. I follow Jonathan on social media, uh, ice skating, gymnastics, the whole thing, comedy. Lots of interest. Um, yeah. Really, it's such a journey in the years since the show started. What has that been like to follow Jonathan along their journey all in the years since the show started? I mean, going from really, you know, hairdresser, obviously, you know, really good hairdresser, but then to where Jonathan is now, it's like so much has happened um, in Jonathan's life and and, in Jonathan's interactions with the world and the the issues that Jonathan has taken on and the things that he's talked about, like very openly. How has that been in terms of like, you know, having the proximity and watching that journey so up so close? Oh, wonderful. Honestly, the show Queer Eye is sort of about watching people's metamorphosis. No doubt. It's just been a joy. We're a family. And so it's been it's been like nobody's shocked. Nobody's shocked by anything. We're just accepting of who we all are and marching forward. And it's fun. So at the end of most episodes, we go back to the loft with the Fab Five and they make cocktails and watch the hero um, put on their new clothes, put their new skills to use and wow their loved ones. I have to ask, what are they actually watching when they do that? We get to see the tightly edited video. Are they watching that, too? Oh, yeah. They they watch that, too. Oh, my yes. God. Really? So they're getting yes, they're getting to see what we see. When it comes to being real. Yes. Oh, because my God. The thing is, it's like. They, you know they can fake their reactions at this point, but I don't want them to have to. I know you've been waiting on this for a while. No one has ever made me cry like this on this TV show before. <laughs> okay, we've had to do a couple fake McGee's, but that's because like we, you know, we wrap the next day and I get to stand in front of the TV and pretend I'm the show, but. 
90% of the time we are watching the playback that usually one of our assistant editors has pulled together in, the, in usually a few days. That's incredible. I mean, there are tears of joy. And, and when you film it, there are tears of joy. I, I don't know if you guys are tear, crying when you edit it, but there are tears of joy when we watch it. I cry when they cry, like it's a thing. You know, it's like there's very, oh, something very God. triggering about watching other people cry, but there's something oh, triggering yes. in particular about watching the Fab Five cry. Um, I'm just curious, like, does that happen behind the scenes too when you're like putting the packages together? Are you like, oh, this is this one's going to do it. This is going to make the waterworks happen. <laughs> you never know. Honestly, I remember the first time I cried was probably doing AJ's episode. Hmm. He was the gay guy in Atlanta. Hmm. And when he came out to his stepmother on the oh, bed. That's right. I, I thought it was important to tell you um, my truth that I am, I'm gay. I wish I could share this moment with, with dad and see how, how happy, happy I am. And, um, And I was just like behind the monitors. You know, I'd done, spent many years doing extreme makeover home edition and I never cried. I would just be focused on my job. So there is part of that where you can distance yourself from being too close to the material. But when those tears flow and you you find yourself watching TV and not directing, it's a special thing. a little bit about the outside world. This is something that I feel like we can't not talk about because when the original series came out in 2003, um, LGBTQ plus rights were very much in the forefront, big part of the political conversation, big part of the cultural conversation. And there was a lot of progress being made, even as there wasn't. And right now we're at a point where there's just like very much actively under attack LGBTQ plus rights and trans rights. And I'm just wondering, you know, does this shift the kind of stories that you're thinking about telling on the show or not? Are you just doing the work that you're doing anyway? Do you guys think about this as you're putting the show together? Yes, we think about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I was thinking, gosh, Pulse nightclub wasn't that far away. Yeah. And, you know, and the tr anti-trans bills that are being introduced is shocking. It's like, wait, we thought we were progressing and now there's backlash. What's going on? It's scary. For sure. But we think about it a lot and we don't want to be too on the nose. But at the same time, we feel proud when we arrive and we're ready to shoot our show because we are bringing a queer perspective to television. You know, sure, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race has been famous for 10 years now and we've got Queer Eye. But when you really think about the general landscape and the history of television, gay and lesbian uh, LGBTQ voices, little heard comparatively. So it's still important is what I'm trying to get to is that yes, we do find that our work is important because we care so much um, about representing queer life to the world. Well, I think your show is 
fabulously important and it is a fabulous watch and it is one of my favorite shows in the history of TV and I I honestly cannot I can never say enough good things about it every single time a new season comes out I'm completely bowled over Jen Lane your executive producer of Queer Eye um, you have won five straight Emmy Awards I really think you're going to win another one I really really do thank you I've enjoyed it so much that's it for this week's episode thanks so much again to Jennifer Lane For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 